0: Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, crossover episode, I'm joined by the hosts of the Director's Wall podcast, Brian Connolly and AJ Gonzalez. Uh, they've they've done basically two seasons, two iterations of the show, the first one being about M. Night Shyamalan's total filmography, and now they're on the Francis Ford Coppola filmography, and they've just gone up to Rumblefish, which we will then discuss this 1983 film on today's episode. Uh, But first up, what I watched this week, I made my third trip to a movie theater since the pandemic began. I went to go see Promising Young Woman, which is directed by Emerald Fennell, who who was a showrunner for Killing Eve on the second season, taking over for Phoebe Waller Bridge. And I was tepid on it. I had this very vivid moment while watching this movie of having been in a movie theater so few times this last year like the rest of us obviously and my fondest movie going memories of the last few years were my last few months in Austin going to the Alamo Draft House to my my apartment had terrible air conditioning so i would go to the Alamo Draft House midday literally for the same reason people used to go to the movies in the 30s and the 40s just for the free air conditioning and you get food there and i just had this very fond vision of going to see the movies and i distinctly remember thinking if i had seen promising young woman then i would have thought it was amazing post 2020 i had my meh reaction which it, it's a great movie it's well made um there's this bizarre it it has this vibe to it where there's not a single redeemable male character in the movie They all have terrible, terrible motives. and I feel like uh, a lot of us, a lot of men in the Me Too era have, our initial reaction was, I don't remember the exact quote, but it was from uh, President Obama's old quote that he just didn't know that there were guys out there like this. And it's not that we didn't believe women. We just didn't think that there were guys who were so predatory and only thought about sex. And I'm still that way. I don't it's, it's hard to like picture just evil men like that. And I don't in general believe in evil human beings. So I would like to be more nuanced on that, but I'm not a woman who, you know, has to hold her keys in between her fingers when she goes to the car. Uh, So what the fuck do I know? And what does my voice add to the conversation? All that being said, going into uh, some very deep waters, both politically and with sexual politics, uh, the movie just was... Pre-2020 would have been amazing. After 2020, my priorities are different. I'm not sure what I thought of the movie. It was was well-made, but what are movies going to look like after 2020? Like, we don't have a good model. Like, what did movies look like pre-1917 and post-1919? Well... A few years later, they got sound. That's all we know. Like, th- we have a much better recording mechanism to find out where the culture is before and after. And I keep thinking about what art did uh, during nine eleven and how everyone w- walked on eggshells around then. And now, this is a year of all of us going through this collective, for lack of a better word, trauma. So, what's the art going to be like after this? Um, who knows um anyway aj also mentions on this episode that we all knew each other from the austin film society including brian which i we didn't overlap with brian but it was cool to find that out but i also wanted to mention that this week through a text thread i heard that someone i didn't know that well but it was around my time era there uh, cj Niels died this week he um was His hometown was muscatine iowa and this time last year i was actually in iowa canvassing and they stationed me in muscatine and muscatine was a really interesting town and i did i didn't know cj that well but cj was we i have very fond memories of (sighs) the austin Film society when you were interning there you we had um the interns had really fun intern parties where we'd show off films we'd make and that basically would be fun drinking nights and we'd have fun drinking games and I remember CJ being a very, very, very nice guy, very sweet nice guy there. And I just didn't want to let it go without mentioning uh that he was here. So So it said uh, pre Ernest Becker and Denial of Death that um, if when a person dies they die twice their physical death and when the last person who says their name and i don't know how that's updated for the digital era era so uh for cj i just want to point out for as long as there's a ones and zeros in existence uh i'm putting his name out there so anyway onward with this episode as we joined by the director's wall hosts uh Brian Connolly and A.J. Gonzalez as we discuss Francis Floyd Coppola's film, Rumble.
1: I know it's like uh, NBC when like, someone from Law and Order would show up on Homicide, Life on the Street, and you had to watch both just because you liked everybody and wanted to know what was going to happen.
0: Or Ursula for mad about you, sister with (laughs) Phoebe on Friends. (laughs) Such a great start to an erudite (laughs) cinema podcast.
2: It's all kinds. Uh, (laughs) We have all gathered here to talk about Rumblefish, the uh, companion piece, I guess, to Coppola's uh, S.E. Hinton double feature. Sort of. Uh, two Essie Hinton movies in the same year. Like two weeks apart, they said, from uh, filming. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited. I, I had never seen this movie before, so this is a whole new world for me. Really?
2: AJ, have you seen it before? No, no. It was my very first time watching it. You both haven't seen this before. Cool. Yeah, this
1: was our big thing. Well, before we get into it, we always like to talk about the Coppola wine that we are enjoying. So, Shane, since you are a guest, uh, which uh, wine did you end up getting?
0: Uh, so I, I've on last few episodes I've listened to you guys' podcast. You guys were t- you guys frequently mentioned that you guys know more about movies than wine. So I'm gonna let you guys feel real special because now you're the experts. Because I don't really drink wine. I'm pretty strictly beer and <laughs> vodka. But um, I have a two- 2017 Zinfandel, and it does not It doesn't really say anything on. That. <laughs> It, it it doesn't have like a family member based on it or anything. So, and it certainly didn't tell me what food I
1: need to eat with it. So. <laughs> I'm guessing it's like what it always is, which is like a nice sne- steak, or we had one that just said appetizers, which could mean <laughs> anything. <laughs> anything you eat before dinner, ice cream, whatever. Skittles. What? So, what is it? Skittles. Uh, what does it taste like to you being a non wine fan? Like in your mind, just like when you sip it, like you're just like grapes. it tastes (laughs) like
0: a red wine um (laughs) it'll make me sleepy if i drink too many of it too much of it so
1: i was at a wine tasting once and the the guy who was running it drank the wine and described the taste as the detritus of the sea (laughs) Um, (laughs) what does that mean how do you taste that?
0: The only thing I could tell you was I had a chance of getting Merlot, and this is my only wine knowledge, and I knew not to, I wasn't going to be drinking any fucking Merlot. <laughs> that's, that's the extent of my knowledge.
1: Sideways, forever ruined Merlot for, for people. <laughs> AJ, what do you have? What do you got?
2: I have the, uh, let's see, 2018 Malbec. Ooh. Uh, I almost got that. Which... I'm certain we've had before because at this point we've had all the Coppola wines and see flavors of plums, black currants and along with uh, aromatic spice notes. And it pairs with grilled meats, delicious grilled meats. (laughs) How is it? It's a red wine. Do you like it? Yeah it's it's good it's like all these Coppola wines like there's the, always the uh the intro of these are like family wines that got passed around the table, and I finally understand now that means it's like you can just kind of have this it's not like you need a super special occasion to drink this wine you know it's just the wine you can have
1: It's usually like the fancier wine you'd see in like a convenience store or grocery store like ooh they have the Coppola wine ooh, it's twelve dollars. <laughs>
0: I do remember getting my first couple of wine and being very, feeling very fancy when I got it. You
1: know? I can't wait till like Zach Snyder has a winery, so we can have some Snyder wines. I think that'd be pretty good.
0: It and it's it, um, it, it takes forever to come out, and it's ultimately going to be disappointing. But there's going to be some <laughs> some bros on the internet who are going to swear to you that it's been better than any wine you've ever tasted. Sign me
1: up. Um, <laughs> so I have the. Pinot Noir from 2016. I don't know if we've ever done the Pinot. Have we, AJ? I couldn't find it. I was scrolling through episodes being like, have we tried this one?
2: I don't mm. think so. Mm. We definitely haven't had a 2016. Normally everything we have is like year of or the year before.
1: <laughs> I like this this episode. It's extra long, and I'm sure there's many people who just skip over this part every time. <laughs> They're like, "Why are they talking about wine? Let's talk about the movie. Because we know so much about wine. I don't know. Some people, whatever. Yeah. But uh, I, let me read you this one. There's a nice little paragraph. So, dramatic style, vibrant packaging, and fruit forward. Smooth wines are the signatures of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Pinot Noir boasts a silky texture and dazzling perfume of crushed raspberries, rose petals, and tea leaves, followed by luscious flavors of plums strawberries and spice pairs perfectly with pork tenderloin or mushroom risotto see i like that they give you a vegetarian option or meat option that's very progressive of them uh learn more about our wines at francisford coppola winery.com this is pretty good i think this is one of the better uh, reds that i've had from them. i feel like i'm missing out
0: on no description that was that was,
1: made me want to have yours Brian (laughs) I wish I had a pork tenderloin (laughs) I should have read the bottle first I think that'd be great if we record an episode we're all just like eating steaks and pork and that would be a great (laughs) one thing
0: you know Godfather is one of those infinitely rewatchable movies for me but without fail every time I rewatch Godfather I have to eat a pasta afterwards (laughs) and so yeah like you guys can start eating after each of these movies. That's I think Coppola would be would approve of that.
1: Every time I watched rewatch The Sopranos, I gained like twenty pounds. Like I, <laughs> every
2: time. I once uh, I gave up swearing. I gave up swearing for Lent, and it worked. And so for months afterwards, I just wouldn't swear, until then the latest season of The Sopranos started season <laughs> five or whatever it was at the time. And it just all came back, and I have not <laughs> been able to stop it ever since you know, 2005 <laughs> or four, or whatever. No fucking Z D. You know. <laughs> all right, AJ, uh, I
1: believe it's your turn to say the plot. I had the hard task of telling outsiders a story that had like 40 different characters in it. It took forever. So you have the easier job because there's not a lot of people. There's not as many characters in this movie.
2: You're, how, this is going to be super fast, isn't it? There's not as many characters. There's not as much plot either.
1: Yeah, so you just going to have to speak with your feelings. Is this going to have to just be like a, 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 you know, a, you know, a, a philosophy, it just philosophizes about the movie, AJ? I'll,
2: I'll just whisper, <laughs> whisper Speaks Mickey Rourke style. Okay, so uh, first of all, very first thing you have to understand about Rumblefish is that it is in black and white. So I was totally caught off guard by that.
0: You didn't know it was in black and white? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and you're like, man, this movie must be really old. Something's wrong with my eyes.
2: <laughs> so this movie is in black and white. It's about a bunch of what's well, about one specific uh, like youth kind of like gang adjacent guy named Rusty James played by Matt Dillon, like 17-ish year old uh, kid in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who's like not really in gangs because his older brother, who like ran the town, said no more gangs, no more fights, and then disappeared. And so now everyone's just in this uh, post uh, motorcycle boy era, but they're still ruled over by the decree of the motorcycle boy. Uh, very first thing is Lawrence Fishburne in his hat. His signature hat he already has it in 1983 or 82 <laughs> telling matt dylan that this guy is out looking for him he wants to fight him wants to kill him matt dylan's like hey i'm not hiding
0: Quick so, question how old is Lawrence Fishman supposed to be in this i don't know because he like, looks significantly older than the guys he was hanging out with
2: he really <laughs> does he feels older Uh, I mean, he's wearing, like, a hat and a tie and, like, a suit, basically. He's got his stuff together a little more. This kind of disappears. Like, it's obvious that uh, Rusty James's friends, played by Chris Penn and Nicolas Cage, are his age. They're, like, they all go to high school together. Rusty James says, all right, fine. He's going to meet this guy behind the pet store at, like, whatever time. Then goes off to hang out with his girlfriend, played by Diane Lane. Uh, they just kind of hang out. He drinks a beer out of her fridge, and she says, "Thanks." Now my mom is going to think that I drank it. Uh, <laughs> he it's...
0: also comes to the door with a Schlitz, which I found amazing to go to your <laughs> girlfriend's parents' house with a can of beer and like just like look in the window, not hide it at all. And, you know. <laughs>
2: Diane Lane's younger sister is played by, you guessed it, Sofia Coppola. This marks the second movie where Matt Dillon has kicked Sofia Coppola out of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> She's hanging around. you know. They just want to hang out and make out. And he says, hey, get out of here. Just, just like in The Outsiders, like, hey, get out of here, kid. <laughs>
0: Sophia Coppola also has some really uh cute pre-puberty teeth. Like they're big. They're chompers, yeah.
2: Very big awkward awkward teeth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> awkward in like the best, the best way. Oh, it's, it's, it's
0: it's endearing, it's cute, yeah.
2: Right. Uh, Rusty James falls asleep and wakes up late. He's for the fight and Nicolas Cage and Chris Penn, they're all hanging around like where is he? You know, the other gang is going to think we're going to fight them because he's not here. But then he shows up, he fights this guy, Biff, and he's got the upper hand on him until the motorcycle boy reappears out of nowhere. And it distracts Matt Dillon, so the other guy cuts him with a knife, and motorcycle boy revs up his motorcycle and lets it go straight (laughs) in the line, and it runs over
1: and knocks it the guy over out
2: biff, uh,
1: biff yeah. it's, it's such an amazing stunt that's a uh, buddy joe hooker was the stunt coordinator on this movie and it looks really good like however they did it I, when i when that happened i was like wow that's so exciting
2: <laughs> right. we'll, we we'll delve into that incredible fight scene and uh, from here on it, i'll get a bit more uh Vague, because the movie gets vague. Uh, <laughs> Motorcycle Boy is back. Rusty James is excited. He wants to like, get the gangs going again, because there's no gangs anymore. And Motorcycle Boy is just very... He's very soft-spoken, because he's kind of deaf. He's also colorblind. And he is like very esoteric and philosophical. Their father's played by Dennis Hopper, who is just a drunk on welfare. He's like a well-meaning drunk. He's not an angry drunk. He's just kind of ineffectual as a father and as a provider. Uh, Things right away start falling apart for Rusty James. He uh, gets kicked out of school for fighting. He ends up cheating on Diane Lane, and then she finds out, so they break up.
0: Because it was a setup. It wasn't personal.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Old. Uh, Machiavellian Nicholas Cage set him up. <laughs> Nikki Coppola. Yeah. Then he, uh, he and Motorcycle Boy and his friend Steve, who's like this nerd, wears a buttoned-up shirt with a collar and is always taking notes, but still hangs around, like still hangs around all these tough guys. Very blonde, with, 80s hair too. Yeah, played by Vincent Spano. Uh, he, they all go across the river to uh, the black neighborhood where there's a carnival going on and they have a good time. Motorcycle boy learns that his fear of being alone comes from a time when he was actually left alone in the house when he was two years old. And their mother took off and took uh, motorcycle boy with them. And the father went on the bender and he was just left alone in the house. Now he has fear of being alone. On their way back, they get into yet another fight where This time, Rusty James like almost dies. He gets hit in the head with a crowbar by guys that are just out looking for a fight, like to rob him, I guess. And then he has an out of body experience, and his body lifts up and he levitates out, and then passes over all the other characters in the movie to see like what they would say, what they would say about him after they found out he died. Then he comes back into his body and Motorcycle Boy easily fights off the other two guys. And this is when we kind of realize that Motorcycle Boy is great at everything only to find that he doesn't want to do anything. Rusty James then also, like his image of this whole gang lifestyle starts falling apart. He realizes that he's not, people don't look at him as the leader of the gang. Nicolas Cage tells him, like, if there were gangs, I'd be president. You'd be second lieutenant. <laughs> and then Rusty James, uh, he tells Motorcycle Boy he just really wants to get out of the town. He wishes he had any excuse to leave. And then Motorcycle Boy goes to a pet store where there are these rumble fish, these Siamese fighting fish The that the If the males are ever close together, they'll fight each other to death. And it's so instinctive that if they see their reflection in the mirror, they'll kill themselves trying to kill this other non-existent fish.
0: And it's the first thing in the movie that's in color, too.
2: Yes. In a very, very cool, striking, effective shot, the fish are the only thing that are in color. Yeah. But he's convinced that if he can free the fish, just put them all in a river, they won't fight. Because the
0: river supposedly goes to the ocean in California, where Motorcycle Boy was at. Yeah,
2: and so he lets out all the animals in the pet store, and he takes the fish. And we're not with Motorcycle Boy. We're with uh, Rusty. We're with Rusty James, and we hear a gunshot. And there's we been a in-
0: cop this whole time that that had uh, Motorcycle Boy's number this whole
2: time. Yeah, he was just out. <laughs> to get him for whatever reason before didn't he didn't like him <laughs> before he died before he left motorcycle boy told rusty james like i'm gonna the free these fish and then afterwards you take the bike and you just go until you reach the ocean and he sees yeah, you know, sees his dead brother he picks up the fish he puts them in the river uh, the cops start to arrest him and in his anger he punches the window of the cop car and breaks it and we see a quick flash of everything in color then it goes back to black and white he uh he leaves and then every character in the movie comes out to see what has happened it's like the end of uh avengers endgame (laughs) I, i compared
0: it to i thought that shot because it's all in one shot was a big fish shot
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, like the... Because every you know, character is in that shot. Literally <laughs> every character just pulling back and they're all there. Just Long, long uh, dolly, yeah, to the wall
0: uh, with the graffiti of Motorcycle Boy, yeah.
2: And then the very final shot of the movie is a shot of the ocean with seagulls and we see Rusty James ride out all the way to the end, to Land's End and step off the bike and just look at the ocean
0: i i had heard that that sh- that shot's not in the script and coppola in the commentary referred to that as the coda of the movie too
2: yeah it feels like um something added last minute yeah um, yeah i think it still works though the film doesn't doesn't need it yeah there i don't
0: know did, so have you guys uh how much did, have you read sc e. hinton's book did you read
2: rumblefish i listened to the audiobook, uh, before this recording this podcast i had not read any se hinton at all before uh, what's
0: it i mean is it kind of got like I've, I've heard it described as young adult before young adult was a thing
2: yeah it's um like rumblefish is real odd like outsiders you can tell is like a, a, a ya book um yeah like it's it, it's meant for for teenagers and Rumblefish also is still written in that style. Um, but it's, it's really like the book. It's, um, I mean, like the movie. It's uh, just Rusty James, five years later, remembering this. And it's all uh, first-person narration. And it's really like meandering. A lot of the stuff in the movie is in the book. It's a very short book. It, the audiobook is only like three hours. Like three hours and wow. One minute.
0: Wow. I mean, I I know she's mentioned that there's a lot of um I, I just I don't know why that picked up much on the movie. I don't know if you two did. There was a lot of uh uh Greek myths stuff in the book that is part of the thing that she thought was important and I just wasn't picking up on it in the movie.
2: I didn't pick up on that in the movie. In the book there is like direct references to the greek mythological characters i can't remember which ones exactly uh i don't
0: i don't know if she was being glib but she acted like the book was out of print whenever coppola was wanting to adapt outsiders and like i had to get find him a copy and get it for him (laughs) um Uh, so you guys are seeing this you guys are both seeing this for the first time um i i was able to look it up i saw this movie for the first time on july seventeenth, two 2010 and i know that because it was on a double bill at the new beverly and i was um beforehand was river's edge and you guys are diving into the mid-80s coppola stuff and finding that there's a lot of it's still the same filmmaker there's still a lot of the same talent and just because he's not hitting the same home runs he hit in the 70s like it's still amazing filmmaker making worthwhile films i was always told to be afraid of coppola in the 80s and like <laughs> yeah so I was I was behind on it and my first viewing blew me the fuck away. Like I thought this was just the coolest fucking movie and I and, and everyone who had shit on Coppola in the 80s was wrong. and yeah. <laughs> um, so the, and then the second time I saw it was after I want to say like two, three years ago, I just finally got around to buying the criterion and um, had a pretty similar, maybe even better reaction to it. And then weirdly, While I was watching the movie uh, for this, doing research and finding out why Coppola and his company made the choices they made, I hate to say it, I found a little bit of diminishing appreciation of the movie just because I didn't understand what everything was supposed to add up to. Like, Coppola keeps talking about this movie being about time, right? And outside of clocks, um, a Tom Waits monologue and the score, which I, I should put out, one thing that's probably hyperbolic for my first reaction was, I thought the Stewart Copeland score was possibly up there with like, I don't know, um, uh, Johnny Greenwood and There Will Be Blood, or Danny Elfman and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, or maybe even Bernard Herrmann and Citizen Kane as one of the best composer debuts ever. Like I thought this was the coolest, and. Uh, and then doing the research found out that Coppola, or Coppola originally intended to write the music himself. And, yeah. and Gio was a drummer, I guess. His son was a drummer and they were doing it And, but he was also, a, or Roman Coppola was, was a drummer and a police fan tried to get Stuart and just to like perform it. And then he got the, the boldness to ask Coppola, can I record the score? And Coppola thought about it and then said yes. And, and I mean, did you, or do you guys watch, um, did you, what kind of stereo system did you watch this in where you could you separate the channels on anything when you watch the movie i just watched it off my tv
1: <laughs> yeah i have nothing fancy i just watched it on my tv i so
0: they had two options on them they had a stereo one and a 5.1 and i think i remember this from the theatrical one i'm wondering if the theatrical is 2.0 it was just stereo but almost every percussive hit went out a different channel so it was just like going back and forth. It was it's very <laughs> cool and unnerving, and like I feel like there's more scores that have been done with like watch ticks or just like that. And most recently, the one that came to mind was Dunkirk. But I know there's more that have done it. But it's just it is such an amazing score too. But yeah,
1: um, I agree. I because I forgot that he did the soundtrack to this. So when when it started, I was like, oh, this this is really good. Who did this? And there's like, oh, it's Stuart Copeland. And you can totally hear the police in there. Like, there's so many of like the the way bass is used and the drum. Like, it's like, oh, this sounds like yeah. really good, The Police. Like, I, it made me excited to kind of go back and re listen to some police albums because it's just been so long. It's just like one of those bands I took for granted, and don't really think about listening to. But uh, this, this yeah. is a
0: score so good that it's only this good just because a uh, director is like bold enough to let. Let their composer off the leash, and or someone who's never done a score before, just like you know, only someone who's never done a score before can produce something like this. Yeah,
2: yeah. I uh, I think this score is great, uh, and it's the kind of music that I would not listen to just on <laughs> my own. I'm, I'm lukewarm on the police. I don't have any strong feelings. <laughs> but this score is amazing, and watching the. Uh, Special features on the Criterion edition was how Stuart Copeland, yeah, just decided to like think outside the box, and then the song they wrote is called "Don't Box Me In."
0: That's a that's <laughs> an odd, odd video, although it's, I guess it's not that odd if you're in the middle <laughs> of the '80s. So
1: I was so excited though when the movie ended with a Stan Ridgway song that he told me took me totally off guard because I'm a big Wall of Voodoo fan, and I was like, "Shit, this is Stan Ridgway doing that!" Like, this is feels so. Like, it's so much better, I think, than the Stevie Wonder song that's in The Outsiders. Like, there's something, <laughs> like, that, that really works with this with this soundtrack for Rumblefish. And, like, and it really works with, like, I also didn't know this movie took place in sort of a nebulous time period. Because I assumed it was also the early 60s, late 50s, just, like, The Outsiders.
0: And so, kind of... You thought the time period was nebulous?
1: It felt like it wasn't really in the past, and it wasn't really the 80s. It felt like it was just kind of, like... Okay. I don't know when it took place because, like, the cars just looked like cars from the early 80s. There Old weren't any.
2: Like, one of my first uh, notes is, when does this take place? Uh, when they go to the other side of the river, they pass by a porno theater that's playing Debbie Does Dallas. Yeah. That's the only indication as to a, a time period.
0: I I took some notes on it, too. I thought the haircuts were 80s. The magazines in the cars looked 80s. The Beach Boys are mentioned. There's a Bella Lugosi movie on TV I couldn't pinpoint, which doesn't say anything time period wise. But the hair was the big thing that I thought nailed down when the time period was. But I think, to your point, Brian, like I think this movie's not is supposed to be timeless.
1: Yeah, and I but I really like that because it's like here's a black and white movie where you have Mickey Work dressed up as like Camus, and then you have like these greaser guys, and it just sort of like. Where, but the modern soundtrack, and I really like that kind of like. What, when is this? It's like kind of its own, like it could take place five years ago, I guess too. You know, like I
2: like that about it, right? Because, and I, I like one of the like the themes of the movie is that Rusty James is idealizing the past, which he's not even like fully aware of. Okay. So he thinks that when Motorcycle Boy was still around, it was this era like The Outsiders, where it was like late 50s, early 60s, we wore our white shirts and jeans and fought and rumbles and everything was cool, like the black and white film era. And the whole film is him realizing that that like it wasn't the way he thinks it was that era didn't actually exist, you know, even when it was around. Yeah, so he's misremembering the past, which In part feeds into the whole like black and white look of the film is that he's thinking that they're still living in this old time era of like greasers and rumbles and really the whole film is his realization that that is not the way things are. That's not how things were.
0: He completely misremembers his mom, not, their mother, they make, they always call her mother, uh, but he completely rem- misremembers the mother leaving him alone part two, even though it affected him.
2: And then uh, his friend Steve uh, finally, like, Breaks and tells, like, shouts at Motorcycle Boy, like, tell him that the rumbles weren't a big deal. It wasn't like that. Very calmly says, like, yeah, yeah, they weren't a big deal. (laughs) The one, um,
0: one time element that has blown me away every single viewing is the time lapse photography in this, the transition Mm -hmm. stuff. And, uh, I, I've forgotten. Zoetrope was either a producer on uh, Comic the uh They were. Yeah. yeah. And I, get, I, I was trying to think when time-lapse or sped-up photography really became in. I think I even before realizing they produced that movie, Like I was trying to think of other instances where it became popular. Like Return of the Jedi came out that year. There's a great special effects sequence where they have sped-up photography and there with the speeder bike. But before that, it's like Benny Hill stuff. I couldn't think of... <laughs> yeah,
1: but, but that's just fast motion this is like total time lapse like you can tell it's like the 10 hours like all these great like shadows moving you know like down like the like the firescape um, one where it's the firescape shadow going. the
0: firescape you know? shadow is amazing oh it's so cool or the other shot that because it, it's just a trick shot is uh when uh when rusty james and What's Nicholas uh, Nicholas Cage's character's name? Uh, Smokey. They talk, Smokey. Smokey talk against a window, and the window has a, a time lapse clouds moving behind it while they're in real time.
2: Yeah, that's great. It, that scene yeah. is like uh, where the film shows like Rusty James is uh, like perception of himself and of his lifestyle like shattering because it's this epic scene where yeah you've got the clouds behind them on the storefront window. Of uh, the billiards hangout, they're moving like unnaturally fast, but they're just yeah. acting, talking like normally. And Rusty James uh, tries to like hand; o- he has a pull cue, and he tries to hand it over to Nicolas Cage, saying like Okay, you're in charge now." And Nicolas don't Cage don't flatter says, yourself, don't flatter yourself, yeah. and <laughs> tosses the pull <laughs> cue down, and then cut back to a wide shot of the storefront and everything is so like depressingly normal. And then, and there's mm-hmm. a garbage can on fire in the alley and that uh, time lapse of the clouds in the windows is totally gone.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting point.
2: Cause the movie makes up, they keep talking over and over,
0: Matt, uh, uh, Rusty James or Russell James as Dennis Hopper calls him, um, is not smart or not word smart is what comes up twice in the movie too. And that's the scene where it seems like he realizes it too. That's also the scene where, where he's told that he wouldn't be the leader. He wouldn't. He would be the second in command. Yeah, and
2: where Nicolas Cage admits that he set up this uh, party at a lake house with these other girls because he knew that Rusty James would cheat on uh, Diane Lane, and then they would break up, and then he could get with Diane Lane. And Rusty James <laughs> says, "I never would have thought of that." <laughs> <laughs> nicholas cage is really good considering this is his
1: first real role in a movie like before this you have his little tiny part in fast times at richmond high where i don't even think he says anything uh, no i don't think and then role. and so this was his, this came out the same year as valley girl and i think this was made first and he's already like he seems like he's already getting like he already has his shit together like he really is like oh this is a nicholas cage role and he looks—he looks, he looks kind of like the Dice Man in this movie. <laughs> like, he looks so amazing. He's got his is kind of big and poofy, and he's wearing this awesome sort of like stylish gang jacket, which I guess was his father's in real life. Um, Fra- uh, Francis Coppola said on the commentary, "Oh, that's my brother's jacket," and he let us let my nephew uh, Nick wear it. And uh, and if you watch the making of, Nicholas Cage has some weird thing he talks about. His character being inspired by being visited by a lizard that didn't hurt him or so. It's like, he's already on his weird wavelength. He's already. I did. I did see, I did see that. It's just like away.
2: always fully formed, man. <laughs> fully formed. Yeah, he talks about how his character is from Japan in terms of management and from Florence in terms of Machiavelli. And I don't remember the he, other. Uh, it
0: was Iago, wasn't it? It was something like, yeah.
2: yeah and, and Iago from, and he's from Shakespeare in terms of Iago. <laughs>
1: But like this movie feels like Coppola saw every you know hot actor for the outsiders, but kept all the really weird weirdo ones for this one. So it's like, oh, like Mickey Rourke and Nicolas Cage are too weird to be in the outsiders. Like Chris Penn is not like normal. I'm gonna save those guys for my weirder, you know, SC e. Hinton adaptation. Like it's this movie feels more dangerous. Like you have Dennis Hopper, which I'm assuming was really drunk because it's right before he sobered up. And so, like this, has more of like, you know, the the dangerous weirdos that weren't in The Outsiders. Um, William Smith and all these people. Well, William Smith was in The Outsiders briefly, but like him as the cop, and just all these like strange, more strange people than The Outsiders had in terms of the types of actors. There's a
0: point on the commentary where Coppola talks about uh, after The Godfather, he could never call those people back to like just show up, and uh, he was happy and bragging about uh, after The Outsiders all these young actors were eager to, I guess in real life, they would just, you know, hang out in Oklahoma for months on end and show up whenever he wanted them to show up.
2: (laughs) Yeah. He's got, um, from the outsiders, he's got Matt Dillon, Diane Lane, and, um, Tom Waits, Tom Waits and Glenn Wintrow, who in this movie plays Biff, who, uh, Matt Dillon has to fight with at the beginning and the outsiders. He was Tim Shepard, the like tough criminal guy. Um, there's yeah William Smith as the cop. And from Apocalypse Now, he's got back Lawrence Fishburne, and in a small role in both films, Herb Herb Rice, who in Apocalypse Now was the guy at the bridge sequence, who to take out oh yeah 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 he's in the bar and he's in the pool hall yeah Yeah, he manages to take out the sniper there's a sniper that's just tearing up everybody and he takes him out (laughs) with a mortar with this giant clunky thing he just fires it into the air takes it off and martin sheen asks him like hey do you know who's in charge and he says yeah and just takes off
0: it's such an amazing line reading too
2: (laughs) in this film he's the guy at the pool hall who when um Matt Dillon saying, I'm going to be just like, I'm going to be like motorcycle boy. I'm going to be like my brother. And he says, nah, like he's a prince. (laughs) You're not going to be like him.
1: And I'm impressed that Coppola would choose to work with Dennis Hopper again after what seemed like a difficult process with working with him for Apocalypse Now. They show in the behind Uh, the
0: scenes (laughs) footage of, uh, I guess, the, um, the, what's the silver, uh, car they had from one from the heart where he would direct from like a tv
2: van silverfish
0: yeah he was whenever hopper had a scene coppola would just stay in there and just not refuse to talk <laughs> to hopper and you see these <laughs> behind the scene footage of hopper talking to coppola being like uh, is this good uh i need another take and they like they went to 46 takes on one of the bar sequence bar shots with them <laughs> and, and at one point even matt dylan says like to uh Diz Hopper's dialogues like you're not making sense and it feels like the photojournalist <laughs> from Apocalypse Now is still talking just with a little bit of a more drinking down it down well
1: this is like right right before he sobered up when he I, I think the story goes he like found himself naked and completely lost in the middle of the desert and was like time to clean up and then I think Hoosier's was his first sober film and then he was sober the rest of his life. Is there do you, so he definitely, do you guys feel similarities between the alcoholic
0: performances between this and Hoosier's? I've never seen Hoosier's. I've seen Hoosier's
2: once, I don't remember it very well. Um, I,
0: I watched Hoosier's I wanna say last year and i mean i i was i was just curious if you guys had a reaction to it there it's it's a great actor playing an alcoholic it's it he, he
2: can make it work someone who's also had experience with it so he could you know method it yeah. up that he needs Being to in um the the point of his life where he is where he was at this point in nineteen eighty two when they were actually filming it and you know, he hadn't he was still having troubles and had not cleaned up yet um it's it is a good performance of a drunk because, and this is something that Roger Ebert has touched on in uh, reviews of movies that have had drunks in them that when a car- when an actor gets to play a drunk, they always want to go over the top. The drunk is going to be, their drunk is going to be mean or they're going to be loud and they're going to make a spectacle of themselves. But if you're really an alcoholic and Ebert himself had problems with alcohol and was in AA for uh I mean, most of his life, which is good. You know, he it up But uh, that. If you're a real alcoholic, you're kind of drunk all the time. There are times when you get drunk, when you get really drunk and you have a bender, you go over the top. But the rest of the time, you're kind of drunk all the time. And that's what Dennis Hopper's father character is like here. He doesn't have any, like, sloppy messes. He's just, like... Uh, drunk all the time big sloppy scenes he's just kind of like uh, like not together at any point in the movie
0: one thing that's similar between those two performances is just they're sweaty but the thing is everyone is sweaty in this movie <laughs>
2: apparently this was yeah. filmed at the peak of summer in oklahoma and it was so <laughs> hot that the, uh, the the company formed to uh, make this movie so like the LLC associated with Rumblefish is called like Hot Weather oh. LLC.
1: <laughs> it's funny because on the outsiders making of, they all talk about how freezing cold they were because they filmed that in like the winter time, and then that you know took long enough that when they shot this movie, then it was nice and warm.
0: Wasn't there a scene in the movie where you see people's breath? Like
1: I, in when they go, Rumblefish?
0: Yeah, when they go to like the black neighborhood or something like that.
1: I don't remember. I don't remember that. I
0: don't know. I don't remember. I might be misremembering.
1: And it was great, too, that uh, Coppola, ever the innovator and love lover of technology, he made a version of this movie in rehearsal they have clips of on the making of, which I wish Criterion put the whole movie on oh the disc. Oh my be shot, so cool. He shot the whole thing on video in front of like green screens and actually shot the whole movie and was able to show the cast the entire movie that they they did. And when you see scenes from it, it looks like amazing, like public access, like terrible green screen, but like Nicolas Cage and Matt Dillon like walking, walking in place. in place, like yeah. was But like, I want to see that. Version of Rumblefish so badly. Like, it's probably, it's gotta still exist. Like, Copel must have it on a shelf. Why that should have been on the DVD? Well, it's, it's also because, like, the one from the Heart
0: methodology I didn't realize survived. I thought that he, like, gave it up pretty quickly, where it was like, oh, we spent a lot of money, didn't make much so money too. from it.
2: The whole story was like, he was gonna do, like, Apocalypse Now was such a mess that he's gonna develop an entirely new style of filmmaking, electronic cinema use it from one from the heart. And then one from the heart like tanks his career and his life. And then like, that's the end of Zoetrope and electronic cinema. But really both of those continued on for a little bit and to see it, like to actually see it, like what he was envisioning, like I've only read about it. I couldn't really picture it. Yeah. That yeah. He's going to have gets yeah, the actors acting out the movie in front of a green screen that, of like you draw like drawing of what the sets are going to look like and so then everyone knows
0: or do you see the drawing the storyboard session where like they draw on the chalkboard that then puts it that
1: yeah this electronic chalkboard and so that way it's almost like you can see these animatics of his uh,
0: electronic
1: i love i i love that stuff it's so good like seeing that footage of them and like the weird reprojection it felt like the Forbidden Zone, or something like that. We're like this. Yeah. If that movie came out, that would just be some weird outsider art that Francis uh, <laughs> Ford made. It's so good. I still find like
0: I, I know the editorial process and the post production process, but the pre production process is so mysterious and it's cool to watch. Like you just get your department heads, like you had Dean Tavolaris or Stephen Barum and the director of photography in there, just like talking through this is what we think the movie should do, and like. That often that's how a movie is made and and it's also interesting just cuz when you realize the electronic cinema survived like Coppola had an efficient process like he made two movies with the same cast like probably for not that much money pretty fast and i mean there's not really any stories of budget over going over on budget on these either of these movies right
2: no no i don't think so um neither of them was a big so outsiders made money was not like a big blockbuster hit but it had a good theatrical run and then it made a lot of money, you know, home video sales, TV sales, otherwise. Rumblefish made no money. Uh, but it was also like uh, uh, not very expensive. I think the budget listed on IMDb and Wikipedia is $10 million.
1: Well, I mean, uh, definitely like making a black and white movie in the 80s is a harder sell. In a movie like this, too, which is definitely more of a quote unquote art film, you know, this is not. Like, because The Outsiders is, you know, more definitely a straightforward melodrama, you know, like it's got its flourishes and it's interesting things. But like this movie is not. Like the regular type of movie you would normally see.
0: I think I knew this from you guys' last episode where it's like gone like outsiders are supposed to be gone with the wind for teenagers and this is supposed to be an art film for teenagers.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I ended our last episode with saying I thought Outsiders was an art film for teenagers because there are like the flourishes, the split diopter shots, uh yeah. stuff that just is is really striking on a, an aesthetic level that hits you subcon that would hit a teenager subconsciously. Uh, but then watching rumble fish like oh my god this is the art film for kids like and <laughs> it's fucking great because it's about like like yeah everything is, is like i think everything's like this but really it, it it it's this other way and i want things to be the way they were before but they actually never were the way they were before and to feel like you have all the time in the world, because you're young, but then you also still feel like you are running out of time, which I feel like that's what the the, the score and the clocks are all yeah. about. That like Rusty mm. James is young; he's got all this like life in front of him, but still feels like he's running out of time to live up to the reputation of his brother. Yeah. and yeah. There's like the there's like the obvious things like him. And uh, his brother lean up against this giant clock, giant clock. <laughs> with no hands.
0: The, yeah, the no. wild strawberries clock. Yeah, yeah.
2: And they're confronted <laughs> by the police officer, who's just wants to get at motorcycle boy. And then they are the like my favorite like uh, parts of this movie are like the weird, dream like magical realism parts where he's just in class and he's daydreaming. And he looks up above the teacher and Diane Lane is in a bikini on top of a bookcase and there's a clock by her feet and the clock is spinning just slightly faster than normal.
0: You're, you're making a lot of sense, AJ, just cause like what I was saying earlier that didn't click You're retroactively making me realize does. I just wasn't sure exactly how time come came on to the characters, but like, cause the things that stuck out to me were like, when I first saw it, I saw it with my friend uh, TJ Volgare, who's a great editor. And for weeks afterwards, he did this great impression of the Tom Waits time monologue, where it's like, I oh only got 35 summers left. <laughs> or he would put berries of like, how long is it going to take me to get to the bathroom? How much time?
1: <laughs> I, I really love that Tom Waits speech. And that whole idea of thinking about time is so depressing. And that isn't don't they say something like that in The Outsiders? Like, don't they? Talk, isn't that also an idea in The Outsiders about like X amount of summers? Um, I don't.
2: I, I, thought, I don't remember exactly. I saw something
1: else within the last month where like that idea was expressed. I remember. Of like um, about well, that way. I
2: remember Johnny's speech where he tells uh, Ponyboy that like he doesn't mind dying if if he if he dies like he's okay with that. And then right before he actually dies, he says like sixteen years like. That's not enough. That's not long enough. Like I'm only getting 16 years, and then he dies, and it's bleak <laughs> and fucking depressing. It's like yeah, like the Outsiders was like, and and the the, the two film, films as well. Outsiders is like the a widely accepted uh, uh, the more palatable uh, material, but it's still really dark. And Rufflefish is. Dark, but it's also not trying to please everyone. You know, it's going to do its own thing, both as a book and as a movie. And if you're on board, great. And if not, it's it's just not going to work for
0: you. Mm. Well, the the tricky thing for me about the movie is that uh, I think the style was is so it's such a young person's film, and it's so excited by the style and Coppola on the commentary. I don't know. You guys have listened to uh, so many of these couple of commentaries or him talk about these movies like but he says in the commentary like this is one of his favorites that he's done but does he say that about almost every one of his movies
2: at a certain point <laughs> nothing not i nothing recall
0: okay well there's, <laughs> al- there's also i i kind of read into it also he has that push pull of like he wants to make big epic home run intimate uh but at the same time godfather level swings but at the same time he's always like why didn't i make a smaller movie that i could have made 30 of those why couldn't i have made more bergman island movies
2: or something like that like well, i think it's and, the whole thing of like you want as an artist you want your what is like uh it, you know uh important and intimate to you uh your more challenging stuff like rumble fish like the conversation you want that to be the god like would have the success of the godfather or of uh, apocalypse now i think he I think you kind of achieved that with Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, like, that is an
1: art film. That is not a normal... But even with The Godfather, with, like, how dark that movie is, like, that's not how a normal Hollywood movie was at the time. And uh, I feel like he's always been, like, this sort of, like, experimental, like, art filmmaker at heart. And, like, once he was very comfortable in his life. His last, like his last few movies are like definitely that, like this movie reminded me a lot of Tetro, which we'll talk about many episodes from now, but that, or like youth without youth they're like, he's just sort of like, he's interested in making. Yeah. Movies like this or like the, ra- this- the rain people like this also reminded me of the rain people, not just because it- they both have scenes of people letting animals loose, uh, into the world. Did you guys hear the uh,
0: story that apparently, um, uh, S E Hinton, uh, put this into the book because she remembered seeing something on TV. And when they talked about, it, they realized she had seen rain people. And that was the thing that inspired her to put the scene in the book, which then got readapted into this movie. <laughs>
1: That's
2: crazy. I, <laughs> and love I that. really
1: hope that uh, Paul Rubens was inspired by this for the end of Big Adventure, <laughs> all the animals out of the pet store. But, uh, but I think that like, Coppola like, has always, at, at his, his core is like a strange guy who makes weird Interesting movies, even when they're big. Like, yeah, like you said, Apocalypse Now. Like that is not a normal movie by any means. Like that is a strange, strange film, uh, no matter how famous it is or no how much money it made. And it makes sense why, when you hear him get sad when he talks about his pal George Lucas, because he's like, oh, George was like me. Like we used to like be into making this kind of weird. He was the greatest experimental art filmmaker, and then he made Star Wars and these things, and he kind of lost. Because Coppola always wants to hold on to that. He wants to still be this kind of, you know, weirdo, making these strange movies. To me, the interesting thing is,
0: I think you're right, Brian. But I also think that whenever he talks about uh, Coppola in interviews, is like someone I wanted to make the film I wanted to make. In certain instances, especially up to this point, no one was like in his way. Or no, one, he wasn't getting Final Cut taken away from him. A lot of what it is is like pressures of who he wants to be. And I think Coppola is always defined by this push pull of him wanting to make well, big films versus small intimate films or surreal films versus uh, epics or something. Cause I mean, like he talked about Sam Spiegel when he was talking about apocalypse now, or he wanted to make like um, Ir- Irvin Allen, Allen movie with, <laughs> with, for apocalypse now. And even right now, uh, like he hasn't, it's Tetra is or uh, Twix is his last movie, but because he's finally, it sounds like he's finally, he's been mounting for a while, but Megalopolis is, spo- he's finally yeah. one getting down to Megalopolis, which is supposed to be his big, epic, maybe last film, or just the feel of it, but it was always supposed to be super expensive. Like, that push-pull is still there for him.
1: Yeah, he, like, he clearly, like, likes and thrives in the studio system, like, how many people want to have their own studio. Like, most people, when they don't want to make studio movies, just want to be on their own out in the dirt making some weird little thing, but he wanted to own his own studio and run a studio. And so he still has that part of like, I want to make movies in this controlled, contained way. I want to make, he might make movies and make people happy. And clearly he also is a man who likes, wants to have a lot of money, you know? And like he, I think thankfully he made a lot of money off of his wine, which is why he's maybe allowed to make these weird movies in these last 20 years. (laughs) But And it's, it's always great to see a filmmaker do what every filmmaker thinks they're going to do at the beginning, but usually don't of like, I'm going to make my big movie and then I can make my little movie and keep that going. Yeah. And most people say they're going to do like out of film school. They're like, I'm going to make these, I'm going to sell out, but then I'm going to make my little thing. And then they usually one
0: for them, one for me. Yeah.
1: But then usually they don't do that. Usually they, they get stuck in making, you know, uh, you know, Hollywood movies and, like very few people can pull that off. Like Richard Linklater, I think Steven Soderbergh, definitely Martin Scorsese. I think Spike Lee, like people who are able to kind of do both always and yeah. do both well. Uh, and Coppola is definitely one of those directors who, who's, who's always done that. And he's always been able to swing back and
2: forth. Rumblefish is the kind of movie, like I was so struck by this, like immediately. Like my one of my first notes is like, I'm instantly... Uh, i'm instantly captivated and it's like the film like you would expect this from like a 25 year old a 28 year old like just out of film school it
0: feels like a very
2: young film it feels like a, a young very film. young yeah film. it's by a guy in his like early uh, his like mid 40s at this point and to think like that mm-hmm. like holy shit like that makes it all the more impressive <laughs> to me that's like oh like yeah like been significantly beaten down too. Yeah, he's been significantly beaten down by the studio. He's had like multiple, like critical box office financial success. He has like how many kids now and mortgages and all these financial problems. <laughs> and this is what he turns out. Like you don't expect, uh, uh I mean like stereotypically, you don't expect a, a film with this kind of like experimental, uh, Drive with this, like, uh, enthusiastic energy for experimenting with the form and language of cinema from, Mm -hmm. like, a filmmaker over 40. It's like, oh, yeah, his early films, when he was young, like, in his 20s and early 30s, those were, like, the interesting ones. And then he settled in.
0: You might be getting to why, like, I had a, I, I didn't have a bad reaction to it this time, but I remember really honing on the fact that the story itself doesn't have an engine. Like the story doesn't, there's no, no character is going towards a certain thing. It's just all meditative. And I kept trying to think of like, what's the engine behind the conversation and like the murders, but in this, but at the same time they feel similar. And there's just, but at the same time, the style itself is the engine, like the the excitement to revel in new forms or like to like, just try out some random, like, that seems to be the thing that drove me in my first two meetings that made me
1: really fucking love this movie. The whole thing just kind of feels like a dream in a way. And like the dream. Like, it's very dreamy. Like the scene, the out-of-body scene, which is so great. Like it really feels like you just kinda of like you're going with it and you're not like Watching this movie, being like, "This is weird. This is dumb. What's going on?" You're like, "Okay, now we're floating with him, over, um, you know, the bar with all his friends raising a glass, and like that's that's those shots kind of remind me of like some Gaspar Noe stuff, like Enter the Void or whatever. I got we that kinda vibe hovering. too. I got. I- we we're kind of <laughs> hovering over life, and you're kind of seeing it from the point of view of like a soul or just sort of like just like a dream it had and like uh,
0: this, also the opening of eight and a half was the other thing i thought
2: of
1: yeah eight, very much like eight and a half like that definitely this taps into that kind of fellini bergman sort of like you know and then like it also reminded me a lot of like racer head with all the concrete and the industrial noise and the shadows and uh like kind of that taking uh german expressionism but making it into more of this kind of dream yeah you know, just like it's really this movie kind of makes you feel floaty. Even the like way floaty that, movie,
2: even the way that sequence was done, like it wasn't just done with wires lifting him up, uh, like the way it would normally be done. They created a full body cast of Matt Dillon and then put him in it, and it's like anchored at the bottom, so that he could just lay there like and they could up, supported just by this like anchor running up through his back, and then he could spin around. Because there's no wire, so he could go from laying on his back, floating on his back, to then turn around. And now he's floating, like, looking down, and then turn around again and go back I into did, his body. I,
0: when, the, 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 um, uh, the splitting, the, the wipe in the scene to do that effect is really impressively done. Uh, when he comes back down into his body, I did notice some wires for the first time. They look like the, um, <laughs> the spinner wires in the old versions of Blade Runner or something like that. And also my favorite thing is in the background, um, uh, I forget who's getting kicked. Uh, uh, is it Vincent Spano, I think? His character is getting kicked. Yeah. Uh, they were not, the, the, the guy kicking him was not fully committing to the
2: kicks. He was just kind of like, eh, eh, doing his half-hearted kicks. I love that scene that you're watching like him you're watching him viewing how he thinks other people would view him himself mm-hmm. and you're not meant to uh, uh, empathize with that point of view. Like when he passes over uh, Diane Lane and Sophia Coppola and they're just like bawling their eyes out and he he tells her like, I swear you are the only one when we know <laughs> like we've seen she was not the only one (laughs) clearly had sex with someone else (laughs) and deserved to be broken up with.
0: Is that like a priority near death experience of a,
2: like he gets his priorities straight. I would, uh, I'm not, I don't think so in that moment, but I think that like, we're seeing how he sees himself at that, like at that point. Okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, There's also a funny story in the commentary where apparently Coppola had this really expensive uh, video projector and he was projecting the dailies as he was shooting onto a wall and they were shooting in a bad area of Tulsa for this scene. And so a bunch of guys came up whenever they were hitting Matt Dillon in the head and everyone kept saying, it doesn't look right. And so he ended up going through like 14 takes of hitting Matt Dillon in the head and Coppola then finally (laughs) realized, Oh, we didn't, they're saying it looks fake because I haven't put in a sound effect yet. It'll look fine once we get the sound effect in. But he had to get hit in the head multiple times because a bunch of derelicts were walking around saying
1: that the hit didn't look right. Um, the Let's talk about the rumble scene at the beginning, the big fight. It's so good. It's so it's good. It's so weird. Like, compared to, like, cause there's the big rumble scene at the end of The Outsiders, which is shot kind of like a big... Uh, you know, like kind of a big battle scene, but it also kind of has that apocalypse now, like in the muddy rain. Muddy,
2: See both sides end yeah. up looking <laughs> the same. But this one
1: has—it feels like a uh, like a Gene Kelly movie or something. Like it feels very choreographed, almost like a dance. They had sequence. a ballet. Like,
0: they had a ballet uh, uh, choreographer help do the choreography for it too.
1: It makes sense because it's like it like it doesn't feel like it, like they're not they're not dancing, but the way everyone moves. It feels very controlled and uh, they use up the whole space the way the music, the music in that is so good. Yeah, yeah they use up the whole space.
2: Um, and then that's there's a POV shot of Matt Dillon like ziplining, that's so good. Like POV shot yeah. of his feet going to kick this guy,
1: and then that amazing motorcycle stunt. Yeah, it's so, just.
2: Fucking, so crazy like, looking <laughs> amazing and surreal and it, it right away i'd say like good movies let you know exactly what kind of movie they're gonna be like early on and so you know like you know what you're in for and so you know like oh this isn't for me i'm gonna check out or whatever and <laughs> so after the black and white and time lapse photography and then if you get to this point and you're still not sure and then there's this really cool and intense but like obviously like staged uh fight scene but it's still like compelling it's like the fight scenes and like the born identity where it looks cool but it also looks like they rehearsed it a hundred times so every hit is hitting and then when motorcycle boy comes in and he's been talked up at this point as like almost like you know like uh, i think uh, someone describes him as as Nietzsche's God. Like I mean, a film critic describes him as Nietzsche's God, like he he delivered this command of no more gangs, no more rumbles, and he disappeared. And they're all living by that, but God isn't there anymore. And then he comes back, and then to prove his power, he without moving, he's like on top of the motorcycle, and he just revs it up, lets it go, lets it go. <laughs> and you watch it go and hit this guy and it, the motorcycle flips up in the air and the guy flips up in the air. <laughs> motorcycle
0: boy does have this ability to end every fight whenever he comes into it. So.
1: Did you notice during, I don't remember, it was this fight, but there's like a, I think it was a, where the white dove flies out. The felt to me, like very John Woo, where like this white no, dove goes. Didn't see that. Flies from, the, yeah.
0: Um, back, the musical vibe I got from this, um, I was thinking a lot of the bad video that Scorsese directed, and yeah. uh, it yeah. also led me to wonder. Off uh, of uh, side note, are you guys going to do a Captain EO episode?
2: We are. You better believe it. Awesome. <laughs> as we're completists,
1: we do it all.
2: As of now, that is available. That is available to watch, and and we will we will watch it. Um.
1: Yeah, we're going to get there uh, soon enough. Soon enough. uh, It's also interesting watching the commentary Coppola talks about that he brought uh, Chris Marker in to do the second unit, the director of Lachete in (laughs) crazy?
0: I was going to bring that up earlier because, you know, back to your guys' old episode of One from the Heart, the thing that bugged me listening to that episode was like – how much could have been accomplished with zoetrope if it had happened where like, you know, David Lynch supposedly had an office at zoetrope and Chris Marker is yeah. only on this movie for a week. And it's at the same time he's doing uh sans soleil, which was his, yeah, but
1: his masterpiece. I, I feel. Yeah. you uh, do too.
0: Okay. I, I mean, it's such oh, a, yeah. it's a great travelogue movie. It's a great journal movie, but he's so he's, you're, sorry, Brian, you were going to tell this story, the the great story of he was only on the movie for a week
1: because he was in Tulsa and was like there's nothing pretty to shoot there's nothing interesting to shoot I'm going back to France goodbye He
0: just finished shooting his <laughs> city travel vlog and he's like Tulsa has nothing for me
1: like, uh, well I mean you're hanging out like cuz Sansale is all the Tokyo right
0: Yeah There's some Europe in there
2: I think too
1: So I mean maybe it's hard to go from Tokyo to Tulsa and be, be
2: inspired But like I love that like future and then Tulsa at this point 1982 Looks like it looks so out of time that you know we thought this movie took place in the fifties.
1: But that's that, I think that's what's so great about this movie is because Tulsa feels like the whole town feels like the bad part of town, so you just don't know like what yeah you know, what year is this? Like it kind of yeah. And <laughs> but I love, like that i that idea that Coppola was doing, and he did that you know where it's like bringing in these other filmmaker, these other talented people to help you make your art like having tom waits do his version of the soundtrack and bring his voice to one from the heart or having
0: michael powell on uh one and one from the heart too
1: michael powell or having Stuart copeland show up to this movie and do the soundtrack the way that he would do a soundtrack and i really love that like true collaborative filmmaking and it's a shame that it didn't work out for chris marker because how cool would that be me knowing like Oh yeah, all the shots of buildings and things that was Chris Marker.
2: Um yeah, that story which I, I heard like as he was telling it, I'm, I was thinking to myself, but you don't mean Chris Marker, you mean like some other Chris Marker. Some guy named Chris Marker. <laughs> it's uh, I brought in R, I I brought in Chabrol to work on my film like, for a week.
1: Like who's another I can't think of like who's another filmmaker that does that? Like you bring in other people. Well I guess Paul Thomas Anderson's the only one I can think of like with the artist who did that those the shaped color things in Punch Drunk Love, or with Johnny Greenwood doing like like the soundtrack the way that he would do like where it feels very much like I'm trusting all these people to do the art the way they do art but we're going to put it all together to make one piece of art. It's tricky. You know, it's, usually- it's typically
0: like a it's- producer's job to do that. And if Coppola yeah. is such an outsized personality that could be a producer at the time, he's EPing all these other movies, that works out. But like on movies I've been on, like the, you'll say something big like, we want to get this person for that. And then you get several rungs down beyond that. And if you do get it, you're <laughs> like, holy fuck, what do we do with this? And then if the work they do isn't what you expected – that's another problem there too where like if, if it just doesn't work out, sometimes it doesn't work out. But like you get someone big to come onto a movie and you're like,
1: right, this, this isn't what we wanted. We, this isn't going to But I mean, like, I guess you get like Silverdor Dolly and Spellbound doing like the sequence, uh, like trusting an artist to kind of do it his way. Uh, I think it's usually hard because artists have, a lot of artists have such huge egos, especially film directors. And uh, I think they want to have the final say and have it be like, this is my, I'm the author. So it's hard to let other people who have that same idea do – do let let them do their thing. It can be hard to integrate, um,
0: too. Otherwise, it's going to feel like an anthology, too,
1: or, or, much, or yeah. episodic or something like that.
0: Okay, one of the other things for my first viewing I want to ask you guys about because – it's it's every time i see it i don't know like i still feel this way about the movie but i don't think no this has never come up do you guys get a touch of evil vibe from this movie
2: um kind of i mean basically i do in
1: the way of like the empty the empty feeling like the way like there's just parts and touch of evil when it just feels like you're in downtown of some town but it's just kind of feels empty and windy and kind of dangerous it's kind of dangerous uh just feeling
2: um
1: this time i tried to catalog exactly
0: why it's black and white wide angle lenses um the shot in what looks like a it's not it's shot on location uh there's a lot of post dubbing on the dialogue on there uh, Mickey Rourke, I think his whole performance is like whispered post-dubbed. I'm not sure he reco- any audio <laughs> came from his per- actual on-set performance whatsoever. But at the same time, like whenever Coppola or anyone else behind the movie talks about it, they just bring up uh, German expressionism. They'll bring up like Pabst or something, or you know, like
2: Kolligari uh, and uh yeah, yeah. Murnau. Murnau,
0: Murnau comes up a lot. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: I mean, I mean, it feels like Touch of Evil in the way that like. Orson Welles movies have the same thing the couple of movies have, where they're really experimental and like they're he's trying new things and he's bold, he's always trying to do something different, you know. And like Orson Welles, another filmmaker who certainly got beaten down over and over again making movies and and constantly being fucked over by the studio, but still always able to make an amazing, you know, movie that's his clear vision that's also very different than any other movie made at that time. So, like, Touch of Evil is a film noir film, but it doesn't feel like any other film noir movie made ever. You know, it definitely has his, you know, strange, you know, viewpoint. Uh, And, like, I think Coppola with Rumblefish has the same thing, where it's like, it's his, it's like, yes, it's referencing German expressionism, and it's based on an uh, S.E. Hinton novel, but it's definitely his own strange, you know, his view of how to make a movie. Uh,
2: Yeah, like, um, I guess i would see touch of evil in this film only like uh, like visually Um,
0: visually yeah Okay. when
2: I think of touch of evil the thing I think of most is uh, and spoiler alerts for touch of evil um, is that the Orson Welles character the corrupt racist cop ends up being right like this Mexican guy did kill these people or plant the bomb or whatever and Orson Welles planted evidence on that guy that guy ended up being guilty, but Orson Welles was still wrong for the way he went about doing it, and that was what Charlton Heston was trying to uh, trying to prove. And it's, so it's like complicated. It's it's extremely complicated, and then satisfying, but not satisfying. And mm-hmm. it's it's a very challenging film, I guess. Sort of, uh, uh, I guess, morally, and I think a lot of moral gray. Yeah.
0: Is is how it works with Rumblefish.
2: And I think Rumblefish is it's it's challenging like philosophically. You know, like like what's going on plot-wise like well like not much. You know, what's uh what's really going on is with uh is with Rusty James. And this like I guess this film is a character study, but it's only like it only turns its hand uh, reveals its hand at being a character study, like close to the very end, because you are just watching this uh, teen like go about go about his life in all these kind of wrong ways. and then I mean, not in like not in one great big epiphany moment realize what it is. He is still taking like his final journey to the ocean because that's what his brother, who he admires more than anything, told him to do.
0: Not to be too pretentious about it, but this is a very existential movie.
2: It it really is. Oh yeah. So with with um, motorcycle boy, the his whole vibe being based on Camus, like consciously based on Camus. He's going to look like Camus, Albert Camus, who you know wrote The Stranger, which I didn't read in college because I read part of it and was like, I'm going to look at Spark Notes. <laughs> uh i it always make, Camus always makes me think of a scene in jarhead where after uh jake gyllenhaal has gone through his basic training and he doesn't know what uh branch of the marines he wants to go into and he's hiding in the toilet reading the stranger and then jamie fox busts in and finds him and he grabs the book and he says camus that's some serious shit Swafford, and throws the book <laughs> away and then tells him to join his, uh, his sniper unit. And that's what I always think of with Camus. Like that's, that's some serious shit. Okay. Let's get rid of it now. Uh,
0: it's the stereotypical college uh, existential tone for people. Yeah, like, is, Oh yeah. I had really my quietest life Once I live a little life.
2: I had my Camus period basically, you know, um, yeah it is it is existential and you you, you like you you don't want to you don't want something to be pretentious of course not like that's you know you don't want to like cut off this thing but it's like in showing how like oddly specific someone's experience is then it somehow becomes like relatable to your own even if it is in some vague way of like I've got all the time in the world, but time is also running out for me. Uh, and the whole character, of Motorcycle Boy, he's yeah, he yeah, he's built up to be like a sort of god to these to these kids or to uh, to Rusty James at least. And then we meet him and we find out oh he like. he he is as good as everyone thinks he is but that's also not the biggest deal you know he knows that he can't really go beyond where he is things can't end well for him
0: I guess guess the existentialism for me is that like that is the motor of the story just like because these characters are just figuring out what the hell they want more anything else where they're going direction wise too
1: um Going way back to beginning this episode where you talked about how people told you to be afraid of Coppola's 80s filmography. I too was always, always heard that, like like through all the way through film school beyond, like at the video store, like he was always used as the example of like the great downfall. Like he was this great filmmaker in the 70s who made these amazing movies, these amazing personal movies, and then he just made shit (laughs) in the 80s. And so far, we're three movies in the 80s, and they're so fascinating. Like, One from the Heart doesn't quite work for me, but it's a very interesting movie, and it's a very different movie. Uh, And Outsiders is great, and Rumblefish is so good. Like, I I think this will end up being one of my favorite couple of movies. And uh, just the fact that people like this kind of threw these movies away at the time is ridiculous. Like I wonder which I haven't seen a lot of his 80s stuff. So I wonder like, what's the movie that is going to happen. That's the one that everyone's like, Oh, this is the terrible movie. That's the example of how he fell from grace and became this garbage filmmaker. But I just don't see the evidence of it
0: at all. To me, and I say this, having listened to a few of you guys' episodes, like I, the thing I keep coming back to is this is a guy that very similar to Orson Welles, where he would spend on other people's money, and or he just kept extrapolating, and saying keep spending because there was going to be a tomorrow, and then he suddenly ran into debt and kids and mortgages in the '80s, and had to you know what's what's the 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 his, his wings you know the wax on his wings started to melt, and and like it's not it's not that the movies aren't they're not shit, you know, like they, they, it's like you were told (laughs) they're not shit. They just, they, there's this feeling that like they help make you appreciate in the seventies, how much he nailed it in the seventies and the eighties when he was hampered by like all these extra, uh, reasons like why they didn't catch on so amazingly, why he wasn't making these huge yet intimate movies in through the eighties and i mean like because because some of these movies like are almost there or like click in certain ways but like they just they don't hit everything they're not a full home run you
1: know i I i think they are though like i think rumblefish to me is as good as the conversation like i think it's like this is a movie where he had a clear idea of what he wanted and he did it and why should we care whether a movie makes money or not? Why should that be what makes oh, it
0: good? I don't get. It's a just shit about weird when too, it's yeah. weird
1: when like, but it's weird when like film school people get in that conversation of like, well, his movies didn't make money in the '80s, so therefore they're no good. And it's like that's not how you should think about it. And also like, even even if he hadn't failed, like even if these movies did make money, for anybody to be able to follow the Godfather movies and Apocalypse Now would be an impossibility because he happened to just make. So the greatest movies of all time, like not just really good movies, but movies that are forever considered upper level, like this is Sistine Chapel of movies. So even if these if Rubblefish did make money, people would still be like, well, it's not as good as The Godfather. Or Pont- no, no, No movie is. Like no movie is as good as those movies. I think the point so, of the, I, the
0: money is that if he if the movies had made money, then he would have been incentivized to be just as bold in the eighties, and he wouldn't have had to like take studio
1: assignments in the eighties, and he could have kept but, maybe.
0: <clears throat> yeah.
1: But like the, the outs, like what before we saw the outsiders, we were told these are the movies where he's just making the money back that he lost from one from the heart. But the outsiders was great. Like it's it was not a phoned-in movie. Like that was a very well-made, great movie, and like and like AJ said, even though that's like a studio movie, it still is weird. It still has like strange things. It's very different. It's not. It's not like watching some regular Hollywood movie from nineteen eighty-three. I, and I the
2: theatrical uh, version. Um, I I still do, uh, but yeah, I was expecting like um, uh, so uh, to get all film school on everyone. Uh, preemptive apologies. Like when Alfred Hitchcock was completing his contract with David O. Selznick, who he hated, because David O. Selznick was like the big producer, the money guy, but more than that, he was the auteur producer, right? Like a uh, David O. Selznick movie didn't, who directed Gone with the Wind? Four different people. Doesn't fucking matter because David O. Selznick is a producer. It's a David O. He Selznick. He takes a
0: bunch movie. of Benzadrine and writes 48 pages of memo notes to yeah.
2: make the movie. So all of Alfred Hitchcock's movies, most of them, for Alf, Alf, of Alfred Hitchcock's movies for David O. Selznick, he was loaned out to other studios so they could just spend as little time as possible together. And then for the final movie to complete uh, their contract together was The Paradigm Case in like 1947, I think. Which is a very boring, it is a terrible boring movie. movie. <laughs> Alfred <Alpha> Hitchcock <laughs> reportedly slept uh, on set. He reportedly <laughs> slept in the director's chair. And yeah. he still technically directed it. David O. Selznick wrote it, and he was involved as much as he ever was, uh, you know, creatively. And if you watch that film, like watch it after, like watch Rebecca and like whatever preceded that, in like. A, Shadow of a doubt, whatever, and then watch the Paradigm Case. The Paradigm Case stylistically, and I like who I'm about to compare it with. It's like a Kevin Smith movie. It's just camera <laughs> on top. Now this talking. Now this person talking, now this person talking. Cut back to whoever's talking. There's no visual style to it. There's no artistic flair to it. It's but it is still yeah. technically an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And so that is but what like, I was really expecting from all these too. films. Uh it's outside. Not of- yet outsider's on. He
1: he's always used as an example of like oh you don't want to you know like just kind of fold, you know, down and make these like kind of bad movies after making such great movies. And so far I haven't seen those movies yet. Like and I'm looking at his filmography and I'm like when does this happen? Like it's that's all I heard before I saw these movies was like he was great and man I, you don't want to end up like Coppola. You don't want to like be like him where you're great and then you just make these like bad confusing movies for the rest of your life. Mm. But like everything we've watched so far has been great or interesting. And I don't know what, like maybe Tucker is like the worst thing ever. And it's going to all fall apart then, but I don't know. I like like Tucker too. So So like, I just feel like it's an unfair assessment of his career. I don't know why he became, I think it is just because it was so public, like because like his problems with Apocalypse Now was so, such a public knowledge and the failure of zoetrope and one from the heart was such public knowledge that it's like you're going to use him as an example and not like robert altman who also made weird inaccessible movies in the 80s that's true so it's like he was so high and <laughs> grandiose i, and I, I have
2: trouble know. name you a robert altman movie from the 80s i can name like beyond
1: them. therapy uh oc and stigs uh by the way either you two uh
0: if you guys <laughs> want to change your mind on altman in the 80s i'd be willing to do a season of podcasts on altman in the 80s if, oh, I love the anyone 80s wants to do a stuff, secret I just, honor co-
1: no, episode uh, I, I mean I, I love popeye like i love altman 80s like I, like I, but i think it's just like a lot of people I mean, he gets the same thing. A lot of people are just like, oh, he was great. And then he just made, like, what is this stuff that he made in the 80s? And then they came back in the 90s and made good things again. And it's like, no. Like, they've always done what they want to do. So far, Coppola's doing what he's wanted to do. Like, sure, he maybe owes a lot of money. But so far, the way he's making it back is by making really good movies. He's not phoning anything in. He's not just doing some – he's not just taking some job as a director. It's not like Eli Roth's current career where you're like, well, you're just showing up and – make like what happened like you're not great
2: oh, but you used to
1: have kind of your own thing going on but now you're just directing these big movies that have no semblance that you're the one who made them like whether they're good or bad doesn't matter but like this is, these movies are still coppola movies you'll feel like yeah coppola.
0: There, there's always something amazing or a great swing in all these movies i feel like coppola or altman or a lot of these people i don't feel like i personally okay maybe i personally don't Attribute the l- lesser quality of the movies in the 80s to something they personally did or artistically did. I think it's the opportunities given to them. And I think Coppola in particular became a whipping boy to, like, if you follow the Peter Biskin model of what happened from the 70s versus the 80s, like, he was the whipping boy for like, we let these directors get too uh, much control and like, not again. And, and you know, the eighties are typically viewed with the fifties as the worst period of American filmmaking. And like the, the corporations were taking over and they were trying to like, like less artists and doing this stuff. And just, you know, we don't want some auteur doing this shit and like, you know, paint for these (laughs) movies themselves.
2: Like perhaps that was, like, that's part of the whole aesthetic in the 80s. Like, uh, a few years ago here in Austin, Richard Linklater, uh, who, you know, founded and is a big part of the Austin Film Society, which uh, I volunteered for and Shane volunteered for. That's
0: I volunteered for.
2: Yep, that's how And we I were. worked there, too. You were, too. That's right. You were. We were all part of the Austin Film Society. Also, I did not uh, know that, Brian. Also, my wife, Lonnie. That's how we met so thank you he's a past
0: guest too so thank you
2: awesome film society thank you richard link later and of course um but he had a series uh called jewels in the wasteland and it was the it was highlighting these artistic uh films made in the 80s because the 80s is viewed as this like it's like all action movies and sequels and like kids movies and fantasies and just big budget stuff made by Canon movies. Yeah. Canon movies made by corporations, (laughs) which once again underscores the truth of RoboCop, which is the real villain is Reaganomics. (laughs) (laughs) Deregulation worked out for no one kids. You're going to find no arguments against here. Uh, yeah but like if you look at the 80s like all the auteur like the the new hollywood kids of the late 60s and 70s make their like meh movies like uh, yeah coppola is the poster boy for that though we haven't found that yet maybe yeah maybe we will next episode here on the director's wall uh like uh uh like scorsese makes uh like it's hard to name an '80s Scorsese movie. Like *Color of Money* is usually held up as his like so-so movie. I think it's. That okay. movie's
1: great. <laughs> you as close as, as, as you're
0: gonna
2: get to is *One for Them*. Yeah. Yeah. After I, I hours think, is like his.
1: I love after I hours. I think
2: it's good too. It's his comedy, but it's all but it's like really dark and not not enjoyable. Uh, and I, Spielberg makes like what like. Know, he makes well, Spielberg
0: uh, did well through the eighties, and then his <laughs> and his he, his bad ones were like his bad ones were at the end of the eighties,
2: like Empire of the Sun and Always.
0: Both oh, I gray. love
2: Empire of the Sun. Always, I love Wait, Always.
0: You love, I love always, always, Brian. You are going to come I on love, the. You are going to come on the episode. I, I try to find why Always is a good movie
1: because it's cause it is. I, it's just like it's such a weird lie that everyone thought the eighties were so bad, like because it's like the 80s you have the rise of of true independent cinema you have like you know like spike lee and jim jarmusch and uh you know like queer cinema and like you know like all the underground stuff coming out of new york and and just like all that stuff so good and then you have okay sure yeah, it was this it was a decade of like dumb sequels and big stupid movies but like so was the 70s the 70s had all the stupid airport movies like it's just like seventies is such a fantasize. It's like a make America great again idea of like the seventies. That was when movies were the best. It was like there was also a lot of garbage in the seventies as too. well. We just
0: we just fantasize you know? the seventies.
1: We, we just we don't talk about it, you know. And every decade has garbage movies and great movies, but the great ones are the ones you remember. And now we're because it's been long enough. We're like, oh, the eighties were great. Like that's when David Lynch made Blue Velvet, and that's when you know, like, there's so many good things that came out of the eighties. And, and it's like all these directors, like all these guys from the seventies, they just happen to make really, really, really good movies in the seventies. And so it's hard, like I said, it's hard to follow really, really good movies. Like, yeah, taxi driver and jaws and, uh, you know, deer hunter. And like all these movies are the best, you know, movies like, you know, like Nashville, like we love these movies. So no matter what they make 10 years later, people are going to not think about it as well <laughs> as, the, as the stuff like just i think it's just unfair to like throw away the altman 80s and the coppola 80s it's just stupid mm. um <laughs> and like it, it's just, like same thing with bands it's just like you can dismiss these things or you can look at their whole career you know and look at the whole thing and it, it's also just a weird way to think about it like who's like being like, oh, this Shakespeare play, but then eight years later, this one, it's just like, or you just look at all of them and see that this one guy made these interesting things and maybe ones are better than the other, but who cares? He has a unique voice throughout his
0: life. I feel good talking to two video uh, video store clerks about this, like the difference between the pedestrian viewer versus the one that actually dives in, and the one that dives in is going to find the more rewarding stuff. Like, they, they, yeah. it's a point, the 80s, there's there's good stuff in the 80s, yeah clearly
1: like i think when people have to beg for money and they have to not be comfortable like they're gonna make they're gonna maybe make something really interesting like maybe it's good these guys didn't get too comfortable interesting okay that they seems to be the to
0: watchword here too you know
1: yeah it's like it's their movies got a little smaller you know and like rumblefish maybe wouldn't have existed if coppola was allowed to just get a 100 million dollar movies all the time because then you're just like Gonna make these big movies. I don't know. uh
2: it, it's, I mean, um, even
1: Michael Bay makes tiny movies like Pain and Gain.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Pain <laughs> and Gain is great. I, I, I love Pain and okay, okay oh, you guys are both crazy. gonna come on to a Pain and Gain episode. I'll, I, I'm with you guys. I'll put they, on that
1: one. but like I think I these do, are true yeah. artists. Like, these are true artistic filmmakers, and like, and they're all existing too in this time period now, where there is an independent cinema and a Hollywood cinema and like Coppola and Scorsese and Altman like they're able to kind of jump between both of them uh and in which which makes sense because that's sort of where they started and then the 70s they were able to kind of get the keys to the kingdom and then they got those keys taken away but now they know how to work in both you know and uh i think and they both and they do it well like you can do your little movie and like just this double you know whammy of outsiders and rumble fish in the same year is amazing like that's an amazing feat for any filmmaker to make two very different movies. To, to go on location and be like, I'm not just going to give you one
0: movie, I'm going to give you two movies. And one is a crowd pleaser and one's an art house movie.
1: Like you have two movies based on books by the same person, shot in the same town, using a lot of the same actors. And these two movies couldn't be any more different. Like they're so different. Like it's not like. Uh, oh, you made the movie, then you made another movie, and you kind of feel the same, you know, because you just kept going. It's like, no, like, these are like two very distinct films.
2: And to think that S.E. Hinton, the author of both, has a cameo in both movies, radically different. <laughs> but both in both movies, again, Matt Dillon tells her to leave. An outsider, she's a nurse. And Matt Dillon says, like, Get out of here. You make me sick. And she's
0: like a hooker <laughs> in Rumblefish.
2: Yeah, she she's either yeah, a, yeah. a hooker slash uh, sex worker or a very <laughs> forward woman. Just like, This guy's good looking. I'm going to ask him if he wants to have a date tonight. He doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Then I'm going to ask Vincent Spano if he wants to have a date. Uh, to me, like those, yeah, those two cameos, a nurse and then a, uh, uh, the street lady of the night sex worker, uh, are so radically different. That's how radically different the films are. Uh, and they,
1: they have crazy. the same
2: DP for both movies. And both movies couldn't look
1: all, any more different. And the soundtracks are so different. And it's just like, it's amazing. To pull that
0: off. I will say Stephen Barum is one of the MVPs of this movie. I didn't realize oh. this. He was he was De Palma's uh, d- uh, director of photography for pretty much from Body Double till uh, Mission to Mars. I did not know but that. It, there was a few. Uh, he, he Some other people did some other movies, but he was the main one, go-to for De Palma for a while this is
1: yeah he did untouchables yeah
2: this leads us to something that i've noticed uh in in going through all these coppola movies and like the like there's the director ideally the writer director and then who's his most important collaborators and if you're like a young film school guy film school person you think like well it's going to be the writer or the producer like the writer helping him create or the producer watching out for the director and letting him do his own crazy thing. But the names that keep coming up with Coppola are like Walter Merch, the sound designer, editor.
0: The creator of the term sound
2: designer. The, the creator of the term sound designer, because for like bullshit guild reasons, they wouldn't let him be called editor.
0: But it was also game-changing too. I mean between I like, I, I ran into an editor a while back. He was telling me a story that he met Coppola, and the first thing he told him was just, like, geek out about Apocalypse Now creating the modern-day sound design.
2: Yeah, like sound – and it's it's weird. Like, you can't be called this thing. Okay, I'll be – so I'll make up this title for myself that's way more accurate and descriptive of what I actually do, sound designer. And Although Merch is an amazing editor,
1: though. Yeah, but
2: – yeah. So, yeah, Walter You have Dean
1: Tavalaris, the production designer. That's
2: to. Dean Tavalaris in like all these films, in every film. It's like, who does he always work with? Like what writer, what producer? Like no, it's the production designer, Dean Tavalaris comes up in all these films. Well, the
0: one the one thing I think is unsung with Coppola, just because the guy that like is so big into rehearsal, so big into his actors' process, and is, it seems to commit more to his actors, is a guy is a dr- filmmaker who so prioritizes his director of photography, who's worked with the most amazing uh, DPs ever. I mean, he you know he he makes The Godfather with Gordon Willis, which is. The modern cinematographer's movie, this defines the visual look of American film forever afterwards. And then Vittorio Storaro, he does multiple movies with, um, I, did he do a movie with Vilma Zygmunt? Um, but Barham on this movie is the MVP. Uh, he's, it's, it, these movies always, he clearly puts so much stock into the visuals on these movies, even if he's, the, the, the mythology around Coppola is that he concentrates on his actors.
2: In a way I feel like and I think this is true with Corsese is what you'll hear is that they like they don't pay too much attention to their actors aside from casting. Like they'll cast the actors and then just let the actor do like not not really whatever. But I don't know like,
0: who I, who did the quote the casting is uh uh eighty percent of the job or whatever, but yeah. I'm what not,
2: I, I don't remember that quote though. Yeah, that is that is the appearance. I hundred
0: percent believe that, yeah.
2: But yeah, you'll hear that, and you'll hear from Scorsese, like not just from the actors saying like, oh, like they let me do whatever I wanted, but you'll hear from Scorsese (laughs) and from Coppola being like, well, I didn't really, like, it didn't tell them like how to say this line, like say it like this or like whatever. It just kind of let the actors do their own thing and build the character, like letting Harrison Ford in the conversation build this functionary character meant to just deliver messages into this like. Uh, Weasley conniving, closeted homosexual character and then let Nicolas Cage build up his, uh, you know, just street thug number number two guy <laughs> to a Machiavelli guy. And like, I'm going to wear these rings and I'm going to wear my dad's jacket. And that was all stuff Nicolas Cage came up with.
0: Yeah, they, 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 which again goes to the fact that fully formed from the beginning. Um, I, I think we should probably start to wind down, but can I do a dump of my last bit of notes? Sure. Go crazy. Uh, The black and white, so the black and white was supposedly because uh, Motorcycle Boy is uh, colorblind. I found it odd that he's not the main character, and it just seems like it was a reason for Coppola 1 to make a black and white movie, which also goes to a point earlier, Brian, I think you kind of hinted around, that Tetro feels like an unofficial
2: sequel to this, or at least... Um, I think if I could jump in here... Go for it. That we could... I think it's clear that Ryan Gosling's whole life has been based around Mickey Rourke as motorcycle boy. (laughs) Mickey
0: Rourke was going to be another thing I wanted to point out his performance in this movie, just because the thing about watching this movie that's so touching is how young and unaffected by a plastic, plastic surgeon's knife. He looks and And his performance, which I alluded to earlier about the post dubbing is it's entirely whispered and his voice is so soft as opposed to fish. Yeah um <laughs> the Rumblefish shots uh those the shot specifically of the fish where the camera dollies to the left is i, I mean i've watched that thing so many times I, I i watched the behind the scenes and even still after they explained it i still have trouble figuring out exactly how they shot it so they shot it in color film Everything else is supposed to be black and white. And then they did a rear projection. The thing they don't explain in there, which I think they did, is they had the uh, fish thing on a dolly. the, The actual fish tank on a dolly. And they had to move it because the rear projection moves to the left. And then you have to have the foreground, which is what's being shot, which is the fish tank. You have to move that to make it look like a full dolly. And so they put that on tracks. I'm guessing, like that shot so blows my mind. There's the, yeah. the, the small
2: effects in this movie are so analog and effective and really yeah. Thinking good. of how they did like that kind of stuff, um, and like the uh, the scene where Nicolas Cage and uh, Matt Dillon are having their conversation outside in front of the billiards place, and the clouds are moving by unnaturally fast, and like, oh my god, how do they do that? Like. You know, like, oh, well, it's computers today. Well, how'd they do it before? Like, oh, way, way cooler. And <laughs> they, better. Like j- they, And just
1: like projected... the little
0: tiny detail of the water on the windows that like makes that that shot work.
2: Yeah, they projected it. The, like they shot the clouds, sped them up, and they projected that onto a screen. And then the window is reflecting that screen. And so the actors can then just act. And then the clouds are also then moving by unnaturally on the actors because it's just projecting on everything in front of that window it's it's so cool and we'll see coppola use a lot of those kinds of effects uh again in in um uh, his dracula
0: yeah I'm, i'm looking forward to you guys as a dracula episode uh the last thing i wanted to point out was i mentioned earlier i saw this movie on july 11th 2010 a week later i took my only trip to san francisco and we went to the coppola cafe and i went to the basement and found this like mural of zoetrope filmmakers and made a bat took a bad selfie of myself in front of all the zoetrope filmmakers
1: i love that place have you been there aj
2: never, never been
1: uh it's great it's the food is good it's fun to be there like i highly recommend like when the world is open again if and if that place is still open <laughs> going there it's totally fun and like yeah it's like it's, it feels good to be in that place it's
0: down the street from like city lights bookstore i can't remember if i had like tea or what but maybe i like to think misremembering it i had a glass of Coppola wine. <laughs>
1: So good. I love that. Do you guys have anything else? Um, um I, I'm excited because this is the first of three movies in a row that Coppola did with his nephew, Nicholas. And I think I've never seen Cotton Club, so I'm very excited to see him in that. Wow. And I love Peggy Sue Got Married and he is on fire in that movie. Uh, so I'm excited to see sort of like what, uh, you know, this, this growing... Uh, who I consider one of the great actors of all time. <laughs> actually, actually,
0: actually, I do have one big question I want to ask you guys. One last big question. Um, uh, this came up. Uh, so in the Criterion, there's an essay by Glenn Kenny, who's a past guest, uh, and he talks about Coppola's brother August Coppola, who's Nicolas Cage's father, and it seems to me he he hints at this. It seems to me a big theme of Coppola's movies is Brothers. It fits mm-hmm. to this movie. It clearly fits to The Godfather. It seems like Fredo is uh, Coppola's personal connection with The Godfather. What do you guys think of, of Brothers and Coppola? And what have you found biographically or watching these movies?
2: So, um, from uh, reading this biography, uh, C- Francis Ford Coppola, A Filmmaker's Life by Michael Shoemaker, um yeah he does like in throughout his childhood really revere his older brother augie uh just like he went to hofstra so coppola has to go to hofstra and you know they took different uh, like career paths but he just always thought his brother was like the best thing ever and he had to like live up to his brother somehow um and yeah, in like Rumble Fish and Godfather Two, especially, which Coppola, I think in that commentary or some interview, he says is like, like it's a very personal film, or it's the most personal film he made up to that point. And Rumble Fish really,
0: is dedicated to August Coppola.
2: Yeah, Rumble Fish is dedicated to his brother, and in that, in Godfather Two, and in this movie, you have a like a younger. Well, no, and you have a brother trying to live up to his other brother. You have Fredo. Tet- Tetra
1: also goes into that. Tetro is yeah. like the younger brother trying to find his uh, lost older brother. That, that's, that's
2: why um, I was thinking this,
0: it's, this is this is kind of the unofficial sequel to this.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, um, it's like this film I don't know if it's, like, if, if it's at, focused enough to be thought of as, like, a character study, like, like, the conversation, which is definitely, like, if you have any doubt is what a character study is, watch the conversation. Or even, like, the rain people. Um. Uh, but, like, yeah, these are films that are just so, like, odd, because they're small. They can be very, very odd. But I think, um, like, as we've seen, Coppola is someone that always has to, like, experiment and think, like, well, how far can I take this film? Like, well, here's this, like, action, potboiler gangster book with a lot of sex and violence in it, and I'm supposed to make this into a big movie. Well, I'm going to turn it into an opera and an allegory for America and family. And he does the most artistic thing he can with it. And then with the sequel, he does something really, really like experimental and artistic with it. He he decides, well, I'm gonna tell the the story of the son and then the story of the father at the like simultaneously and flash back and forth. Like that's that's something you'd expect from you know from an art film, from like a small art house film, but it's in like the big sequel of all time
0: that really goes to something like his like the artistic intimate experimental ideas coming from pulp roots being like i need to adapt mario Puzo or se hinton or john grisham like um or bram stoker like I i need to find a way of turning salacious material into something
1: intimate and artistic and that and that's experimental and that's bold and so like i think that just proves my point that he's always been an interesting, weird, you know, guy pushing things like his movies happen to have been embraced by the world in the seventies. But like, I think the Godfather to me is just as weird as Rumblefish. Like it just happened to be a hit. But like at the time, people were like, I've never seen a movie like this before. Like it's interesting to take the gangster genre, which was known as sort of this trash in a way, to make like a really important movie out of it, like that is bold. Like he is always, he's always been brave and has always tried new things. Like his entire life, still. But oh, his whole. <laughs> he's always
2: been brave. He's always been bold. Um... It, it, yeah, there. There's two final things I want to bring up. One is that the ending of this film really, I think, consciously, purposely, is evocative of the ending of the Four Hundred Blows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Francois Truffaut's yeah. first film, which kicked off the French New Wave, which then later kicked off the New Hollywood 10 years later, which Coppola was a part of, about young juvenile delinquent Antoine Doinel, though he's like 12, you know, uh, and that film ends with him like running away and then finding the ocean, running away to the ocean, then he looks right at the camera and it freeze frames and it it's meant to be like well he's like he, he made it he escaped now what and i think that kind of ending though maybe on a more like optimistic uh positive note Though i mean on turns out to have to have an okay life as the later like four films about him would prove is that like yeah motorcycle boys he made it to California, but he never made it to the ocean. And he tells Rusty James, like, make it to the ocean. And then to see this coda, which like, yeah, I guess on a basic level is unnecessary. We see him actually get to the ocean. And then he just steps off his bike and like, well, he's made it now. What? But it, it, it's sort of an optimistic. Now what? Like it, it's like in, in fight club, you know, the, the most, wildly misinterpreted film ever maybe uh just line that film like it's only after you've lost everything that you're free to do anything which normally if you're like an angry frustrated uh you know 16 year old boy you take it as cynically as possible but like there's a really positive way to look at that too yeah and i think that's that's the ending of uh, of rumble fish is that now like, well, what, what, what's he going to do now? That he reached the ocean. Well, well, whatever you want, man, you, you can make your life, whatever you want. You don't, it doesn't have to be gangs and fights. It, it can be whatever.
0: I'll be honest. I never picked up the foreigner blows thing. And I think, I think that's really spot on. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, the, the second point is that we all have to thank for everything. Always Roger Corman. <laughs> roger corman gave king of the Bee movies great director i'll just say great director unqualified i agree
1: he's uh, a great director
2: you know gave all these young guys coppola scorsese ron howard jonathan demi their starts and just like hey kid you want to make a movie yeah sure mr corman okay don't spend more than this do whatever you want do it however you want move the
0: camera every 13 minutes have a tit shot once in the movie yeah.
2: get some nudity in there get some violence don't spend more than this do it ho- however you want and then they had to like experiment and like okay like like throw all of themselves into these movies and then like the like the great ones you know uh coppola like they they never really lost that and so Coppola like I've got I've got not as much money like he doesn't have paramount behind him like for the godfather he doesn't have all these uh the money he did for apocalypse now which was at the time the most expensive movie ever made you know he's like just like he was able to talk some someone into giving him some money and I'm here in Tulsa and I just filmed a book that was sh- set in Tulsa and there's this other book set in Tulsa I'm going to try and squeeze out another movie as quickly (laughs) like quickly as possible like like he's trying to get away with something like the way there's like we're here in Ireland for an extra two days do whatever you want film dementia 13 yeah do it however you want and like he did it then and dementia 13's like I mean it's like it's not that great but it's not like you know, like there, there, you watch it, and there is like artistic style and promise that he really did develop on, and then yeah, to see twenty years later, Rumblefish made in like the same spirit, and it is like like way more artistically challenging because he's got all this life experience now, and he's like more uh, willing to take all these risks.
0: It's funny that you point out, like, the adversity still hit him. Like, he, whenever he'd been on top of the world and then he's not on top of the world anymore, it's still, he has to go with the same instincts. Or, is it, where you, Where can I find you guys online?
1: Well, we have an Instagram page called The Director's Wall. That's how you can, like, interact with us more quickly. I check that every day. But we have a website. Um,
2: directorswall.com. Uh, we are directorswall.com. also on Twitter at The Director's Wall. Uh, I will get better about that. Uh, I had, to, I just, it for a long We've time.
1: been doing this for five years, AJ. You're never going to get better at it. Just, it's fine. You don't have to. It's not part of your life. You don't need, you don't need to get better at it. AJ, you have Twitter. It's okay. It's fun. Fun.
2: I will post when we have new episodes and when we, we are about to have new episodes on Twitter.
0: AJ, you have a website you write for and Brian, you have another podcast you guys might want to sell.
2: Uh, I uh, yeah I, I have a uh, a blog uh, I occasionally write for called cinema then and now blogspot com. It's always my New Year's resolution to write more on it, and maybe I will. But you can also check out Book and Film Globe for past uh, Five Phenomenon guest uh, guest host Lonnie Goldstab. She writes about classic films on there.
1: And I have another podcast called The World is Wrong, which I do with my good friend Andres Jones. And we uh, talk about and review movies that everybody hates or has forgotten about that we think are actually worth watching and are interesting, good movies. All right. Uh,
0: Brian Connolly, AJ Gonzalez, I want to thank you both for being on the
2: podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us, Shane, on your podcast. It's- <laughs> thank you for letting me be on your podcast. Yeah. It's magic, people. <laughs> um,
1: no, this was fun. This was great. I, uh, I'm glad that we were able to talk about this movie and drink a bunch of wine.